0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. The reason I'm in Oman is that I'm presenting at an event for a group called the Young Presidents Organization, of which I'm a member, which is a group of global entrepreneurs. And this event is specifically around consciousness and about having conscious business leaders. And I met a fascinating, fascinating guy here and decided, you know what? I am going to interview him uh, because it wasn't a planned interview, but it was one of those things that just the universe lined up for me. His name is Abdul Hai Holdyke, and he's a lecturer from American University in Cairo and a practicing Sufi and an expert in alternative and functional medicine. A very unusual human being, as you're going to hear on the show. You're going to love this episode. Abdul, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Tell me about the course you taught at American University because it's fascinating and it's not the kind of course that I've heard about anywhere else. It's
2: um, I noticed that in freshman students that came to the university who are largely Egyptian and who come from a very traditional conformist kind of setting and they come to the university and they don't know how to handle the changes that they're going to be going through, because they're going to be going to a Western, secular, educational institution. And uh, on that basis, I developed a course, uh, an interdisciplinary course, which is, of course, a buzzword among academia. And so uh, I developed a course called Who Am I? And I tried to look at it from a neurobiological point of view, from a psychological point of view, from a sociological point of view, um, from a social conformity point of view. Uh, I have a section on death, uh, typologies, and uh, the courses uh, as I established it maybe now 12 years ago, 10 years ago, is still being taught, although I've now retired from the university. And now I teach similar courses outside the university to older uh, students. And then I uh, developed another course, which was also along the same lines uh, for seniors at the university who I found had problems adjusting to Egyptian society after having been educated in this Western secular uh, educational system. And so I called it integral living. But both work on the same premises, that you need to know who you are and to link that to the tradition from which you come much of western education as we notice in western society was that you threw out the baby with the bathwater you uh, you know we europeans were very anti-religious because we found right. that religion was a, a disaster when it came to social change or politics and things like that and so i i wanted to show that you could integrate what was the best from the islamic tradition with a modern education and integrating these
1: together You were born in Holland. You're not Egyptian. As a child, as I understand it, you lived around the world. Yes. Were you born into an Islamic family? No. Tell me about that. That's fascinating. My mother was Lutheran. She's German.
2: She was German. And so I went to, uh, when my father was in the U.S., they sent me to these Protestant churches. And when I came back to Germany, they tried to get me confirmed Mm -hmm. Confirmation, but I got bored and so I didn't complete the process. You had a problem with confirmation bias? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) Uh, But since I've been about 15 or 16, I've been very interested in Far Eastern traditions. And like I say, Europeans are allergic to God. (laughs) And so I'm of the 60s, 70s generation. And so we were interested in Zen Buddhism, we were interested in Hinduism, uh, Vedanta, and things like that. And I, I very early on, I was reading uh, Suzuki and a variety of other writers. And uh, I, I went to university in the U.S. And when I graduated, I came back to Munich, where my family was based. And I started um, getting interested in more esoteric subjects. And I, uh, I did my M.A. In, in London at the School of Oriental and African Studies because my girlfriend was studying philosophy at Oxford. Uh, when I finished the M.A., I, I got fed up with academia. I didn't like it. And I, I uh, managed an esoteric bookshop in Munich for two years. <laughs> the reason was that it had 20,000 books on all kinds of religions and esoteric subjects, and that uh, fascinated me. And... Uh, I began to realize after reading a lot that to have any kind of spiritual progress in almost all the traditions, you need some kind of a guide because your ego is not a good guide. And so uh, I looked for, for teachers, as many of us did during that period, and I couldn't find anybody. They were all uh, New Age gurus who were claiming something and one thing I had learned was that generally to be on the safe side, a teacher should come from a tradition and they shouldn't charge money for their spiritual instruction. Mm-hmm. So those were the two conditions. And so um, then I, uh, uh, I was in Munich and this, this man showed up and he was gray haired and wore white robes. And he was a German who had been living in northern Sri Lanka for many years, for 40 years. And uh, I, I liked him. And at that time I was driving taxi at night and ambulance during the day just to keep myself alive because I worked at the bookstore for free. And I met this German man and uh, I said to him, can I come and visit you in Sri Lanka? And he said, yeah, sure. Um, And so I didn't have any money at the time. And about a week later, a man left 20,000 German marks in my taxi. Wow. So I took it to the police and the police called me in three days and they said, you uh, have a 15% finder's fee. With that money, I flew to Mumbai went overland down to southern India, flew to Sri Lanka, and spent nine months in an ashram with this guy, wearing the usual you know white robes and doing forty buckets a day from the well. But he told me right from the beginning, he said, "I'm not your teacher." Uh, we can be friends, and we spent a lot of time together. He spoke nine languages, was very educated and a very spiritual type of guy. And then uh, he said to me, I never learned Arabic. Maybe you'll find somebody in the Middle East. So Wow. I, so I said, oh, well, I don't know. Now, it just so happened that my best friend had moved to Beirut. So I went back to Germany and uh, I got bored with Germany after having spent nine months in an ashram. And uh, my best friend was in Beirut. So I traveled overland and you must remember that in 1978, when I arrived in Beirut, the, full, the civil war was fully on. And at that point, I had been for years looking for someone. I gave up. I said, look, if you're going to arrange this, you better arrange it from your side because I'm fed up looking. Within a week, I get this telex because at that time we had telexes. Mm-hmm. It said, go to Damascus, to this place and see this person. Who sent that to you? The guy who was my partner in the esoteric bookshop. (laughs) Because we had agreed that if we heard about a real spiritual teacher, we would tell each other. Because we had seen so many false ones, basically. Wow. And so uh, I took this telex. I got in the taxi from Beirut to Damascus. And these are international taxis. When you arrive in Beirut, you have to go from the international taxi stand to the local one. So I stopped the first taxi that came by. And of course, I didn't speak any Arabic. So I just showed him the sheet. I said, I want to go here. Now, later on, I found that nobody in Damascus knows where this is, right? (laughs) And he said, get in. So I got in and he drove me straight there. He turned out to be a disciple of the man I was going to see.
1: Wow.
2: So when I entered the mosque, the Sheikh, my master, he looked at me and he said, been waiting for you. And he was one of the few Sufi sheikhs who spoke English. So he had a couple of disciples sitting around. In a, I I felt like I had entered another century. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I immediately, I sensed, I felt at home. And, and that's how I knew.
1: That's a profound story. Now, explain the different flavors of Islam. I've always been interested in, in Sufism. Uh, but what is the difference between that lineage and all of the others. Give our listeners and me more of an education than I have. Almost
2: all the, what we would call the mystical traditions are embedded in an orthodox tradition. And that has a reason because the orthodox tradition, according to one of the great mystics of Islam, uh, Sidi Mahidin Ibn Arabi, he said that the religion is like a shell, like a walnut. It's rigid, it's inflexible. But it protects what's inside. And the inside is the mystical tradition. It's what gives meaning and flavor and nourishment. Okay? And if you had the inside without the shell, it would just simply flow away, it would not survive. That's very
1: powerful. I like that.
2: Yeah. And so, from my experience, is that the tradition and the practices of the tradition have an inner meaning. Not everybody's interested in it. So the outer shell is sufficient for them. And there's always been an antagonism between those who are attached to the shell and those who see the inner meaning, even in the Islamic tradition. And even the inner tradition has different flavors. So there are many Sufi paths and they express themselves or their attachment to God or their attempt to to melt into the divine. Different ways. The most famous uh, in the West is the Whirling Dervishes. That was a technique. There are others who demonstrated their devotion to God by sticking swords through their bodies and not bleeding. We have North American traditions that yes. are similar. Yeah. My tradition, the expression is silence. You wouldn't think it when I'm talking so much, but <laughs> but the yeah we do a silent and uh, that'll be the rest of the show.
1: That's <laughs> a that's
2: a good one. Um, and so they're also one of the traditions are embedded in the society. It's unfortunate. And that's part of my problem with sort of new age stuff is that you take uh, one of the first things I read about Zen Buddhism that appealed to me was burn the sutras. It's only later that I understood you got to have sutras to burn. (laughs) Right. And so the tradition are the sutras and yes, the inner tradition does burn that rigidity but it doesn't burn it completely because the tradition provides the way kind of resistance to your ego okay and the ego is persistent very much right so you know otto rank the famous psychoanalyst he said your ego is an armor Mm -hmm. right it's a defensive structure it has no other purpose than to defend you Yeah, keeps you alive. It keeps you alive. And the more the environment is threatening, the thicker your armor. So a lot of the process of spiritual work is to make the armor very thin. You can't really ever totally get rid of it. Agreed. Right? And so the second question is, who's inside the armor? So Wilbur and his people, they say it's growing up and waking up this is Ken Wilber for yes. people listening. want to Google it or look in the show notes. Okay. Yeah. So the growing up is to thin the armor, to do those things, to recognize where the ego, where you're stuck. Now you can only see the ego if you're, if it's offered resistance. So fasting, for example, mm-hmm. although it has health benefits, it also makes your ego appear. It sure does. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so then, you know, uh, I'm hooked there. Mm-hmm. And, spiritual teachers will recognize where a person is hooked. So if, for example, you don't have any problem fasting because you've got practice, etc., your problem is somewhere else. It's maybe anger, for example. So he will assign you the particular task that will make your ego appear. Right? <laughs> so when, when I first met my teacher, very early on, he said, uh, within the first week or so, he's, he looked at me and he said, Abdul Hai never gets angry and I initially understood that as a kind of compliment because I'm a calm kind of guy, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to get angry, I don't want conflict and stuff like that. And then I realized after I got married that I constantly got angry, <laughs> that I had suppressed it to an extent that I wasn't recognizing that it was there. It became invisible to you. It became invisible, yeah. And so we find, for example, in, in prayer, for example, the, the mind is distracted. So you're supposed to focus, but you won't notice that you're not focused until you enter the state of trying to focus. Right? Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of these little things. Um, in kind of Sufi training, the ego, I mean, there's one story, for example, of uh, in the old days, everybody wore turbans. Mm-hmm. It was the sort of the de rigueur uh, dress for a Sufi. And the sheikh would take the disciple and take off his turban and tell him, walk through the market. And as he walked through the market, his thoughts would arise. What are they thinking of me? I'm I'm not dressed properly. How you know, who am I? And so again, the resistance, the change in the environment would make the ego appear. And then you have a chance to do something. As long as it's invisible, can't do anything. And it's a bit like Jungian shadow work and a variety of things that I do in some of these self development things in the courses.
1: That's uh, that's really powerful. I, I'm not sure I understand the difference, though, between Sufism and the worldly dervishes, which are sort of the stereotypical Western thing, right. and, say, a Shiite or a Sunni or any of the other forms of Islam that I'm maybe In less aware of. In terms of their
2: external practice, you wouldn't notice.
1: Okay, so externally, they they so it's no. all internal... Okay. Yeah, it's and it, to some extent, in some
2: during some periods of Islamic history, these uh, people that were practicing Sufism became quite famous. They occupied high positions in the religious hierarchy, etc. And in other times, they were regarded as innovators, people who were not really true believers and things like that. Okay. But in terms of their external practice, it would be the orthodoxy of whatever they we're practicing on the external level because there was no real difference. Because eventually there's no difference between
1: the shell and the nut. It That makes sense. It, it's sort of like, I, I don't know how many wars we've had over whether Jesus is the actual son of God or right. <laughs> they're one in the same. Uh, you can have all sorts of things, but they kind of look like Christians to me. Yes, uh, But the, this, the nuance is there. So, yes. okay, I yes. get it. Uh, listeners probably don't even know this, but I was one class away from a minor in religious studies in my undergrad uh, because I'm interested in all the stuff I always have been and I never took the other class because it seemed like too much work. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I... I, I like that. So so you wouldn't know if someone was a, a Sufi versus another type? If of... somebody
2: calls himself a Sufi, run the other way.
1: Okay, so <laughs> am I using the words wrong? So, No, what? you can okay. call somebody, <laughs> uh-huh. but a
2: Sufi would never say that about himself because the position of a Sufi is a very high station. It means somebody who uh. has achieved that which, you know, union with God. It's like calling
1: yourself an, an exalted. It's calling, even,
2: I mean, the, especially the Sufi uh, groups are very careful that you don't attribute anything to yourself. You were talking about pride, yeah, right? Pride and ego, right? Yeah. So that's, we're very careful because we say that there's a very famous saying is that shirk, shirk means to associate something with God. Mm-hmm. This is the, the biggest sin. Okay. so that you you associate something other than the divine with something else. And the basic instrument for that is your ego. Okay. And they say that associating something else with God is so subtle that it's like an ant on a rock in the middle of the night. Okay. It's so difficult to detect because
1: it slips into everything. And there, and by slipping into everything, it... it somehow removes it it, it, because
2: we say that your, your connection to the divine, the only obstacle is you. Okay. And so as long as you are there, you're not connecting. (laughs)
1: Uh, This is why personal development work is, is such a challenge because it it has inherent conflicts that if you're only in a rational mind doesn't work. And when you dissolve the rational mind, there's something left after that. Yes. Um, so you've explained how, how this became your path. Literally, you downloaded it and the universe walked you straight in there yes. for lack of a better word. Yes. How common do you think that is for people? Not very. Okay, why you? I don't know.
2: And it's a very big, I mean, it's one of the essential questions in religion in general. You know, why is there guidance? Why is there not guidance? And I don't think it's an answerable question. And that's why when you talk about gratitude, we always say, I mean, we have to be grateful. That we met a master, that we had the opportunity to to work on ourselves. You know, how, no matter how far we got with it, or how much we think we got with it, but that's an essential
1: gratitude. You've taught for decades. Yes. And uh, at what point are, are you a a master? No, I would never consider myself. A would master. would your master consider himself a master? No. Okay. No. So at what point are you at the level of attainment of your non-master master? Exactly.
2: So this is a question we always get, you know, what level are you at? I said, this is not a historical or scientific exercise. Race, right? No. You know, uh-huh. there's this one cartoon uh, of a Buddhist nun sitting around and uh, one of them goes, eat my dust lady, first to enlightenment. You know, <laughs> that's not how it works.
1: <laughs> I, I, I was joking around with my kids, and I came up with my favorite sort of equivalent of that. And I said to my son, "I said, Alan, my ego is smaller than yours." Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Similar kind of thing, or a yoga competition, yes. which they actually have. Like you can't have a yoga competition because that's not what it's about. One of the interesting things I teach—I
2: don't know if you know about—is a, t- a typology that I find actually very useful: is the Enneagram.
1: Oh. The single best categorizations came. So talk about the
2: Enneagram. well, um the Enneagram, I just talked at an international Enneagram conference in Cairo. Okay. I'm one of the founders of the the branch in in Cairo.
1: Oh beautiful. Well, define what it is. A lot of listeners may not know about it. The Enneagram is a
2: typology uh, of human behavior which is not too simple and not too complex. Well put. Because if you ask somebody who's in the business world and you say, what's your disk? You know, they Mm -hmm. do these tests or your MBTI and they'll say, well, maybe I'm a a this, but they can't remember. (laughs) It's too complicated, right? Mm -hmm. The Enneagram is simple enough that people can sort of remember the nine types and there are some subtypes and... It really is, uh, it's a very practical system. Now I was fortunate that um, I I studied with some of the people who who founded the Enneagram, Russ Russ Hudson and and Riso. But uh, then I found a teacher who separated the sort of spirituality of the Enneagram from its practicality. And I'm a pragmatist. I won't do anything that doesn't work. And even in Sufism, Mm -hmm. You, you know, we're not going to believe anything unless you've, you actually sense it or you've seen it or it's worked for you. Yes. That is so good. And in the Enneagram, I keep telling people this in my courses. I say, the only time I understood my wife is when I studied the Enneagram because the pattern was clear to me. I knew her well. Now now you're still married? Yes, yes. Okay, (laughs) just checking. (laughs) And uh, I find it. I find it very, uh, a very good method for understanding uh, ego behavior. Mm. So even if you're, when you were saying, for example, achievement in yoga or enlightenment first, this is a typical behavior of a certain Enneagram type, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's the external success, which is, the, the driving force behind the person. And once you understand it, you can really understand behavior, even in terms of religious belief, why you believe certain things. You know, you get new ages, everything is love. I said, I'm sorry, but you know, God created love as an opposite to hate. So <laughs> everything it's is not, not love. <laughs> everything love, right? So you gotta, you gotta kind of understand how, how that operates. And I find this method, a very sort of quick and dirty method for figuring out where you're kind of hung up. It's not you. And one of the things I, I try to teach people, because I do typologies in uh, homeopathy, for example, um, I say, you know, you have a skeletal system. So maybe the enneagrams describes your skeletal system. Homeopathy might describe your circulatory system. You're, so it's you, but it's not you.
1: It, it's an aspect of you. It's an aspect the, of you. The reason I've been a fan of the Enneagram for a very long time is that it's the only system like it that I found that describes your ego behaviors. When you're in your best state and yes. as you start to decline. So, if you want an early warning system when you're going off the rails, and it will be invisible when you go off the rails, yes. your friends might tell you, but you won't listen to them because you're yeah. going off the rails. <laughs> so, this is very quantitative and just tell you right there, this is what's going on. You will yes. do this, then you will do this. And it is shockingly accurate. It's shock- shockingly accurate. Yes. So, so I, I love it that, that you've incorporated that. But now you've mentioned homeopathy. Yeah. Now, we all know. That homeopathy is for witch doctors. You're it's basically, woo-woo. there's no molecules left. That's right. Therefore, uh, it's, you're just giving people water and stealing their money. That's uh, right.
2: Uh, exactly. To, t- tell me why. And that's why 400 million people use it worldwide.
1: Um. <laughs> <laughs> what if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk free for up to a hundred days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15 Qualia NAD plus. It's what I use. The uh,
2: I'm again, I told you I'm a pragmatist, right? So I am not i I have a Western secular education and mm-hmm. I'm not gonna use something that doesn't work. <laughs> So the reason many of us start something like this is that from my German background, we use natural medicine. My mother would right. never go to the doctor unless you were dying. Right. There were natural ways to treat you. And so when I got children, I wanted to treat them naturally. And I was living in Egypt where there's a real dearth, a lack of traditional medicine. and modern medicine has almost completely replaced traditional medicine. Uh, Which is sad because some of the sad.
1: very early aspects of medicine came out of, of, Egypt. of Egypt, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, and so what I
2: did was uh, I started reading, and we had, you know, we had a friend who was a qigong practitioner. We mm-hmm. started practicing qigong, and my daughter had a fever, and he came and he held his hands around her head, and her fever went down. And so we that, understood that doesn't work
1: because it can't work. That's right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> by and the way
1: that, that is the scientific religion that has infected a lot of yeah a lot of people yes okay. and so the homeopathy
2: was because i wanted to treat the children and i read a book by george Fatoulkas, who was one of the great revivers yes. of, of homeopathy and uh we started using it and we started using it for burns we started using it for cuts we started using it for all kinds of things and i arranged for a charity. And again, this was sort of, you know, the synchronicity of the universe, mm-hmm. brought me somebody who was running a homeopathic charity and wanted to find some people to teach in the Middle East. And I happened to be there. And so I gathered a group of 20 people and they sent homeopaths every two or three months and they stayed in our house and they taught us homeopathy. And, and you have studied this for 20 years now. I've been practicing and studying for 20 years. Okay. And I've seen... You know, I've treated about 5,000 patients and I've seen cases of people who have been chronically ill from acute problems. There was a one girl who had been hit over the head with an iron bar because she got between, an ar- between two brothers while they were arguing. And she, for two years, she was on heavy painkillers, Prozac, personality changes, etc. And we gave a homeopathic remedy and it just went away. So after you see these kind of results. And it's not a question of, you know, modern medicine didn't know how aspirin worked for a hundred years, <laughs> right? But did that prevent anybody from using it? No. So this is basically how, you know, and I teach, uh, especially mothers are very interested in this. I teach large groups of people. I pretty much founded the homeopathic movement in Egypt.
1: That, uh, that is amazing. I, I will admit coming from a family of engineers, Uh, that homeopathy when I was young was absolutely not credible. And I became much more open-minded, just, hey, the Western stuff didn't work for me. And it wasn't until I saw a guy, his name was Tim Guilford, and uh, he had a stroke recently, uh, but he was a Johns Hopkins surgeon surgeons are a different kind of doctor and by the way there's a lot of surgeons and other doctors who listen to the show so you all know i'm talking about your egos might be bigger than the average doctor no offense Um, and you're you're good you're also very highly paid and you trained yourself like crazy and what tim said was dave i'm an ent surgeon and my patients don't get better so i would have the same people come back two years after i cleaned out their sinuses and, and it would come back so I got really annoyed and I started digging and I had to go outside my practice. And eventually, he ran a clinic that did all kinds of cool functional alternative stuff, an early proponent of glutathione, but he also did homeopathy. And I remember he gave me some drops. And I'm like, really? And you know, he shook them up himself and all that. I'm like, okay, but this is a guy who said, I will do what works. Exactly. And he gave up a surgery practice to exactly. do it. It wasn't for the money. It was for the results. And that was, for me, the thing that made me say, all right, there's something here. But to this day, most of the time when I take homeopathic drops for a- acute stuff, I don't feel like it does anything. Yes. But for weird interpersonal like, like stuff, I've had crazy results from, from almost of the more mystical, spiritual, emotional domain. Someone makes some things for me, someone who's learned, you who know, knows what they're doing. Uh, and then saying, wow, how, how did this just happen? So, what, what is going on after your 20 years? Do we know? No. <clears throat> well,
2: part of what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow is that. Um, tomorrow at this event. At this, this event. Yeah. Um, is that people are, you know, I'm an academic, so I like to define my terms. Okay. So, so people are very sloppy with the words spirit, soul, emotional mm-hmm. body, energy. So, I, Yanni, you know, from my. Uh, uh, energetic practice and my holistic practice, and my Sufism and my thing, I've set up this model. And uh, you'll see tomorrow on the, on the slides is what one of my Enneagram teachers taught me. All models are false, but some may be useful. George Box. <laughs> well said. Right? And so I don't care how sophisticated your model is, it's false. Because mm-hmm. it cannot encompass all of reality.
1: But it's a model. Unless, it's a model. Unless you have a life-size map of, of the country, in which case it's not useful. Exactly. Okay. And so the model here is that the energy body,
2: and this is traditional for almost all alternative medicine, yeah. is a regulator. Mm-hmm. It regulates the emotional, mental, and physical body. So whenever there's a trauma to any part of the body, whether it's mental, emotional or physical, the energy body is the mediator. It decides on the basis of what it thinks is the best solution. This is what we call the self-healing capacity of a human being. They have fantastic self-healing capacity. The energy body has that capacity, but it also has the capacity to put symptoms where it will do least damage to the system. Okay. Yep. Because it's trying to regain a balance. So if, for example, uh, you get a a concussion or something, it will decide whether it's just going to give you headaches or it's going to give you depression. And in homeopathy, we have a hierarchy in terms of the seriousness of the symptoms. It's going to try and put it in the least damaging place. But it can get stuck there. And once it's stuck, what you really want to do is just unstick it. Okay, and you can use Chinese medicine, Tibetan medicine, whatever it is, to get the system unstuck, and it will then do the work to unstick itself. It's
1: designed to regulate itself because it's regula- designed yeah. to regulate itself.
2: So the remedies or the the medicines which contain nothing um, <laughs> are a kind of energetic push to the system, and you know, like in Germany, for example, you can buy homeopathic remedies over the counter, and currently there's a kind of pushback from Modern Medicine Against Homeopathy in particular. But you can find, you know, because that's part of what I do, you can find uh, primary care clinics in Calcutta that treat 1.2 million people per year and they do satisfaction surveys on the results of homeopathy versus, and they get amazing results. And it's not a perfect system, nobody said it was. It might not work for you, it might work for somebody else. But when you've seen it work then you see, you, re, you realize that
1: all it needs is a little bit of a push and it starts regulating. And, and it works better than placebo in many of the studies I've yes. seen. And yes. then there are also the skeptic studies who say, look, it doesn't work like that. And one thing I've learned after you know, 20 plus years of, of working with various people in functional integrative anti-aging medicine and all that is that there's there's three variables anytime you're, you're dealing with this. There's the patient... There's the condition and then there's, well, we'll call it four things. I said three, but there's the patient, the condition, um, there's the healing modality and then the practitioner. Practitioner. And how important is the practitioner in homeopathy versus other types of medicine? In all medicine, the practitioner plays a huge role. Thank you.
2: (laughs) Okay, it doesn't matter (laughs) what it is. And for people who say, well, it's placebo, I said, yes. Exactly, (laughs) I've been to medical conferences where I've been asked to speak about homeopathy and the drug company tells me 43% is placebo and 52% is the drug. I said, well, why aren't you using the placebo, (laughs) right? It's a lot more, it's a lot safer, right? right? So yes, homeopathy consciously, the fact that you would have to sit for an hour and a half and talk about all aspects of your life is a healing situation. And that's placebo, right? Mm-hmm. Because again, we're stimulating the self-healing capacity of the body. So, if I can use the placebo,
1: why not? It it would seem to be the ethical uh, lowest friction result. Okay, you can do that. But homeopathy, at least in enough studies I've seen, yes, does outperform that. Yes, is that because of the homeopath who's doing the work with the patient? Um, no, because no. Okay. we treat animals. There's
2: homeopathic veterinarians in the European Union and you can see videos on how they treat impossible... That's
1: kind of hard to argue with.
2: Yes. Because animals somehow aren't very susceptible to placebo. No, they're susceptible to patterns of behavior, but in these cases, they don't know that they're getting it. There was an initial study once on mastitis in cows. Yeah. And uh, it's one of the big problems because you have to give antibiotics and the European Union is trying to reduce the use of antibiotics in animals. About 80% of antibiotics yeah. are used in animals. And so uh, they just put it in the water of the cows and they reduce the mastitis in the herd by 80%. And so, you know, how are you going to <laughs> argue with that? And we use it on babies and we use it on... I mean, there's lots of stories. I mean, I have lots of stories obviously, but they're called anecdotal. but the, and the cumulative evidence clinical
1: is, observations yes and, and this is one of the forms of evidence that I, I find most interesting and one of the things that is oftentimes discounted because you'd have the drug companies tell you only double-blind placebo-controlled yes. clinical trials matter and that is flies in the face of science yes the frontline part of the scientific method was uh, observe observe right and then hypothesize and test and but when you have doctors doing this in their clinics with patients and saying when i do this it works when i do this it doesn't work it's very useful information and, yes. and it's it's something that it, it drives me nuts when i see that rejected and so you're saying you know we, we've seen this so if you had a sinus infection yes what would you do I would use a combination.
2: I'm usually kind of synergistic approach, but you have to remember there's an Arab saying, which says the door of the carpenter is always crooked, which means he never (laughs)
1: treats himself very well. (laughs) (laughs) The the cobbler has no shoes, basically.
2: Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah, so I usually don't use homeopathy because I reserve it for when I have something serious. So I use propolis... I use Buteco method, breathing methods, I increase my overall immune system um, because I regard colds, sinus infections, flus as practice runs for the immune system. And one of the things we've noticed in alternative practices, is if somebody doesn't get acute disease over long periods of time, it's a bad sign. Unless they're extremely healthy, but that's not usually the people we see or they have a chronic problem which is suppressing their
1: acute immune system. That's an interesting perspective and not one that I've, I've heard before. Which is that new? You, you want to get sick once a year just to keep the immune system going?
2: Not that you want to get sick, but it's a, a sign that the immune system is working. So one of the things we've noticed, for example, is that in children who are immunocompromised, in the sense that they've had a lot of antibiotics, uh, any kind of uh, hormonal you know, intervention like cortisone or whatever, they don't produce high fevers. So they get 38, 385 And we, in healthy systems, we feel that the high fever is the thing that helps the system to recover. And if they can't produce high fevers, we feel that, you know, their immune system is not really up to scratch. And so what happens is, is that if you give homeopathic remedies, oftentimes they'll get a high fever because you're stimulating the immune response. And if you understand how to deal with it and you don't see it as a threat, uh, then you can very quickly recover the immune response of the person with that way. What does that mean for fever-reducing medications? Generally, homeopaths and alternative medical people don't like fever-reducing. Um, there is a certain, you know, there's a certain um, mentality in medicine, modern medicine, which is that if there's a possibility of a negative effect, even if it's only one or two percent, I give the whole population the drug so as not to be sued or to be
1: it's ridiculous
2: yes so my wife for example who delivered in egypt um right after she delivered they came in with these pills and she said what is it and she said antibiotics and i said but why oh. she says well in case you get postnatal fever it's the and worst said, thing you could do exactly so we said no we're not taking it right so it's the same idea with fever some children may get convulsions from high fever but they're the minority and you would know right away that this is a child that is susceptible. So you would give a fever suppressant in that case. I'm not illogical. But in most cases, I would say 90% of the cases, the high fever should be supported. And in homeopathy, what we find is it goes up and then it rapidly goes down because you've pushed the system to where it wants to go.
1: And certainly, a lot of viruses and bacteria can't can't function. be treated with homeopathy. Yes. Yeah. Well, no, I'm saying they can't function oh, with uh, antibiotics. Uh, ah, uh, right. yes. Yeah. Yes. And I, there are only a few people who are going to say, oh, "We have a broken bone and a snake bite." You know, here have some homeopathic drops. That that goes almost without saying. But but on on the fever front, it, it's an interesting perspective. In uh, in California, kids under a certain age who have a relatively mild fever. Yeah, you're supposed to, by law, take them into the emergency room an urgent care uh, thing, and and I that is not a high enough number to merit that, but it's that avoidance of risk that actually seems to increase but that's risk.
2: I come from Holland. My daughter has two. We have two grandchildren, yeah. right? You cannot take a child with fever into the pediatrician unless they've had the fever for three days. <laughs>
1: That is so different. You hear that, friends in America? I live in Canada, so I'm in a neutral third party. Uh, it's like the Switzerland of North America. There's only two countries there. But anyhow, I, that makes me happy. So that it's it can be different than the system that we're used to. Yeah, okay. I mean, the, if it isn't
2: different, you will find that the, the health of the overall population declines I and mean, you begin to see that there are consequences. Because one of the things is you cannot fight nature. Nature will always be more powerful. We found this out with antibiotics. I mean, basically the adaptation mechanisms of bacteria, et cetera. How are you going to defeat that? You're going to
1: make it worse. You're going to make it worse. Uh, one of the things that has me most excited is what you mentioned with uh, animal agriculture. Yes. Because businesses uh, by their nature like to save money. I mean, who would have thought? So if they can find something that works, they will do it. Yes. And it doesn't mean it's always in our interest. They they can make animals fat on less food by giving them hormones, which they do regularly. But if they can find something that isn't supposed to work, that actually works, they'll be the very first adopters. Yes, and that's why I say if you use homeopathy, you have to be a pragmatist. It has to work.
2: Why would we run around the world trying to deceive people? It doesn't make sense. There are very intelligent people who are practicing this medical craft. And... They're not charlatans. It, it it wouldn't go with their conscience. They're people that are actually trying to help others, and so I find it you know very very strange that this uh, that people can't accept that.
1: I I look at it as really pragmatic and saying, look, try it. Worse comes worse. You might have some little sugar pills or some little drops uh, that might do nothing. Right? That that's your risk, right? Oh, and of course, whatever the cost of them is. When funny enough, it's less expensive than most pharmaceuticals. Yes. Okay. Well, in America, in any case. <laughs> Fair point. Pharmaceuticals are a little cheaper where you live. Yeah. Well, speaking about Cairo, Cairo is not exactly a, a place with low levels of pollution. What do you do about pollution?
2: I take high levels of supplements
1: what that's not very homeopathic of you
2: uh well it is actually <laughs> I'm
1: what supplements do you take
2: one of the very first things i when i was looking for vitamins was uh, that i got a hold of uh, i was in contact with some people in the u.s and i asked a guy called pizorno i don't know if you know him uh, he's been on the show he's yeah. a friend yeah and so i said who do you recommend and he said well one of the people i recommend is the life extension people i've
1: known them for many years yeah and, with I said, and, and i kind of. Kind
2: of trusted them and so I generally use their supplements. I know there are other companies out there and, and everything, sure. but
1: but uh, I've, I've been very happy with them and I, t- I so, take their vitamins. Okay, so you use vitamins um, from a company that's been around for 25 years doing non-profit work, excellent. I actually use some of their formulas too. I make a lot of my own as well, but yeah, it's a trusted company, okay? So you get those imported to Cairo and you take high levels of vitamins. Give me like your top 3 or 4 that you think are going to help you in a in a polluted um, environment. I generally use their multivitamin.
2: Use a multivitamin. Their okay. li- their life extension mix, okay? And uh, they have like you take 8 per day it's pretty heavy duty it's pretty heavy duty it's got pretty much everything and one of the things i like about a life extension is they do the research and i think they're the only company that's ever taken the fda to court and won twice so they have some (laughs) high-powered people there so i think they do their research and they actually have a lot of plant extracts they don't just do supplements i use a lot of plant extracts yeah so i because i teach homeopathy i've kind of branched out into some side things okay Um, one of the things is I use plant extracts. So for example, for treating, uh, high blood pressure Mm -hmm. or people with cardiac issues, I give curtagus.
1: Cortagus. I don't know that.
2: Hawthorne.
1: Oh, Hawthorne. I know Hawthorne. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, so there are a few uh, plants that I use that I, because again, I'm, I'm kind of using a synergistic approach because if mm-hmm. I feel that y- you have to remember that people come to me when they have a pathology. I'm not treating healthy yeah. people, but if I want to maintain somebody's health, I do recommend certain kinds of plant extract like ginkgo, for example. Yeah, um, Berberis is a very good one. Oh yeah, I um, love Berberin. Golden Seal, which is limited because they had some problems with that. But uh, I usually uh, order my herbs from England, from the Herbal Apothecary.
1: There definitely are some herbs that get uh, that that come from China that aren't yes. tested, and there's purity issues. Yes. But now the science has come out just in the last five years. says, Oh, your gut bacteria metabolize these. So I, I take dozens of plant extracts. I I use some of them, the formulas that I make uh, for Bulletproof. And other ones aren't in there or they're not approved somewhere or right. whatever else. So I, I do take 100 plus supplements a day and I'm completely happy to do it because I travel like crazy. I sleep in hotels and I do all sorts of bad yes. things exactly. that I wouldn't do if I was a caveman. Yes. Okay. What do you do
2: for jet lag? Um, For jet lag, we have a couple of homeopathic formulas. And actually, there's an Australian guy who made a fortune selling something no jet lag.
1: Oh, the homeopathic (laughs) jet lag stuff.
2: Yeah. Does it work for you? Uh, Not always, no. No. Yeah, I I never got results from that one, but uh, I did test it. It also because if you fly a lot, you know that certain directions the jet lag is easier to take than in other directions. Flying west is better yes. than flying east. Yeah. And so uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, I've we use Arnica, for example. It's an anti inflammatory good yes. one. Yes. And, uh well the, the idea for me is is that it's not natural to fly at 30,000 feet above the Earth's surface and your energy body doesn't like it yeah and so when you arrive your energy body is out of sync with your physical body it kind of has to take time
1: to to sink itself and anything you can do to, to sink it is good there, there's an old an old story from some of the first explorers in Tibet and they traveled really fast and then their guide sat down they're They could see the destination they were going to. The guide sat down and said, no, we're waiting for a day. And the explorer people said, what are you talking about? We're going to go down there. And they said, no, we've traveled too fast. We have to wait for our souls, energy body, whatever it is, for that part of us to catch up. And when I've been in phases of my life where I'm spending more of my energy on Meditative realms than CEO realms. I've felt that when you fly, you can actually feel yes. the the stress or the stretching or the energy body trying to keep up. Uh, not that I necessarily knew what to do about it. Now I think I have more more skills there. But this is the stuff that people don't really talk about. Oh. But there's something weird about it. With that stress for you, I mean, do you have like a chant or no? The thing is, is that I'm aware of these
2: kind of things because of my teachers. The first teacher I had, the German, Mm -hmm. he visited me in Germany and I had this old VW that we drove and you know, the Autobahn, there's no speed limit. right? And so there's a minimum speed limit, 60 kilometers. And so he didn't allow me to go faster than 60 kilometers because he said it was inhuman. (laughs) Wow. And uh, we also had an architect. My wife studied with a very famous vernacular architect in Egypt, Hassan Fatahim. He builds mud brick domes and things like that. And he said, it's unnatural to build higher than three floors
1: because you lose contact with the earth. Wow. So the whole earthing movement, I've been an early voice talking about the electrical flow and how that's important. So an example of that. Yeah.
2: So, I mean, kind of we 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 work with that so when when we fly i usually take a lot of vitamin c i take a lot of supplements and i uh, take sometimes uh, melatonin uh to adjust yeah
1: talk to me about spiral dynamics which is part of what you're what you've incorporated into your teachings yes spiral dynamics is interesting because it kind
2: of maps out evolutionary developments in value systems in in cultures. So it allows you to map out the predominant culture system and values uh, that you may be living in. Now, what's interesting about that is, is that uh, as a person who has lived in a highly uh, conformist culture um, and at the same time teaching in an environment where you're taught to be an individualist, Which is the predominant Western paradigm. And then you have the sort of cutting edge, at least now sort of cutting edge of the Western paradigm is the green movement. And they map out the value systems in these. And one of the things that I used it for was for the Egyptian revolution. And when the Egyptian revolution happened, many of my students who wanted to protest the sort of social practices and political movement, etc., they went down into Tahrir, they protested. And then I said to them, listen, after this revolution, we're going to get a backlash Mm -hmm. because you represent a small sliver of the social values of this society. And this society wants to recoup its traditional values. And these are Islamic values. So you're going to find political parties that are going to appeal to Islamic values in the same way that in Europe, we had Christian democratic parties Mm -hmm. because people want to feel secure in their value system. They don't want the system overturned and a totally new value system to appear. And it's one of the reasons why I think fundamentalism has, has arisen in many of these societies because it's a kind of retraction to the familiar uh, values that they hold. And it doesn't really have a lot of tolerance because the values are this skin that I was talking about, you know, the... The, the outer forms. And so uh, it's very problematic. And many of the students that graduate from the American university are conflicted because they have a, one kind of value system and then they have to go home and live in another value system. So marriages used to be arranged. Right. So now you're educated in a system where you're an individual and you're free to choose your mate out of romantic love, which is, of course, Hollywood values. But, <laughs> but uh, that's a problem, right? And then you have green meme kind of values where there are no hierarchies, where everybody is equal, where there is no better and no worse, which is another kind of value system, right? Right and in, in they they map this out so it's great for conflict resolution and it explains a lot of political problems because you know when the americans invaded iraq for the first time to reestablish democracy well that's a value system right and you can't re- you can't do that in a society that's split along ethnic and religious lines so what happened is is everybody votes shia or sunni because they don't understand democracy it's not in their value system it takes 50 to 100 years for a society to evolve into a new value system do
1: you think democracy is in the us value system today
2: no not really i mean i studied american history at an american university and they had these you know they have these four year reports and the kind of back uh, room lobbying that goes on in the United States d- tells me that,
1: that in presidential elections, there's no such thing as a democracy. It's pretty, it's pretty bad. And also now, even if people's votes are counted fairly, which the evidence would say they are not. Uh, but even if they are counted, it seems like the vast majority of people vote on lines that are not that different from the Shia versus Sunni. Like you're one or the other and you will vote for your people. The tribalism there has destroyed democracy the way it was designed. I don't know. You know, I show
2: a, a movie called The Automatic Brain, which was done by a German television audience. And they have these brain researchers. And they can predict the outcome of an election just on the basis of how the person looks. <laughs> I totally believe that. 70% of the, because they did this in studies where they would just show the picture and people will vote on the basis of how someone looks. They don't want to know
1: about- Being tall helps a lot to win an election. It's amazing. And now I'll be really rude about it. Being white helps a lot too, right? And even if you are, if you're any other race, even if you're very well-spoken and you're more qualified, there's an unconscious bias that's just wired in, at least in the US. Out, Out in another country where people look a different way, it might be the opposite. Right. Uh, so we, we have all that. And is there an answer in Sufism or in, in your training for that? The, uh, I
2: mean, generally what we say is the only way to improve the world is to improve yourself. Uh, I
1: very much share that value. Well, this has been a, a fascinating discussion across a bunch of areas I didn't even know we'd go. But when I met you uh, at this event uh, and I heard just the incredible diverse things you've worked on and the fact that you know you have a, a college level course you know the the who am i kind of perspective i said all right we've got to talk on the show thank so you for inviting Abdul, me thank you for being here is there a place people can go to find more about your work a website or social media or something uh, i don't do sure? social media i was guessing you didn't i was to and ask i but... do face to face but not facebook <laughs> all right I've heard of that face-to-face. It's like faxing, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and again, that's part of my traditional teaching. You know, the way you really get something is that you connect with yeah. somebody. And that connection can be maintained through time and space. But you know, the whole principle of a transmission mm-hmm. line, and it's almost in all the religious traditions, it is. it's because you, you kind of plug in. Yeah. And it's that connection. So I, I, you know, I usually operate in obscurity. All right. <laughs> but you can you can check out, I have a, a small website, h2rc2.com. h2rc2.com. Yeah, it's holistic and homeopathic resource center and consulting. And I put it down to a scientific formula,
1: h2rc2.com. I was so sure there's going to be a Star Wars joke in there somewhere. <laughs> no. <laughs> Abdul, thank you for being on for you.: it. Thank you very much. If you like today's episode, you know what to do. Uh, Go out there and uh, try homeopathy. Now, I just pissed off 20% of you when I said that. And here's the deal. I could be wrong. You could be wrong, but your risk is very low. And if you get some results, hey, that's cool. And if it pisses you off so much that you need to unsubscribe for the show, I will still love you. It's okay. On that note, have a beautiful day.